Hello, and welcome to the Come Follow Me Weekly Wisdom Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. My goal is to deepen your faith in and love for Jesus Christ and His Gospel. I believe that when we understand and have faith in truth, that it will change us in an incredible way. You can best support these podcasts by purchasing one of my books, The Divine Nature and His Voice, The Teachings of the Old and New Testament. These books can be purchased on Amazon or by visiting my website, www.unfoldingthescriptures.com. Thank you. Today I'm going over the Epistle of John. If you didn't catch the other podcast, those are the ones I like better, and those would be where we dive in a little bit deeper. I actually had intended to go over two sections. I spent so much time on one, which if you knew me, you'd understand that I pretty much do that every time. I have like no concept of time, and I can ramble off forever, so hopefully it wasn't too much of rambling going on. With this podcast in particular, I'm going to do an overview of some of the verses in John and go through some of the highlighted verses for me. Obviously, I mean these verses, I mean these books are so rich that it's all it's it's impossible. Let's be upfront, it's completely impossible to pick and choose. There's so much wonderful content in the epistles of John. Uh for so John chapter 1 verses 5 and 5 through 7. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This was actually the other verse, the section that I was going to spend time on. And I may just have to leave it more as a teaser because I could probably go off for another hour on these three verses. In essence, though, I was, when I asked the question in the first podcast on the the epistles from John, the question was, is how do we experience God? And the predominant focus in that podcast is that the main, most fundamental way that we experience God is in love. Love is a connection. And I won't reiterate all of that, go back and listen to the podcast to get the more in-depth analysis there. Now, I wanted to actually say that there is a second form in which we experience God, and that would be the idea is God is light. And this one's a lot more difficult to convey. So for now, I'm just going to leave it as a teaser and say that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. It has somewhat to do more so with our conscience, that that's one of the most fundamental ways in which we experience God. And conscience can be described as light. Now, I know that that's a metaphor, but the metaphor is very, very good and true when you're actually trying to describe these things. Experience itself is difficult to describe. It's Experience itself is a pool that is somewhat ineffable, and yet we make it effable. I don't know if that's the actual word. Ineffable meaning you can't describe it with words, and yet that's how we have to that's how we have to communicate with one another. So we have to take things that are ineffable and try to communicate it in some sort of language. And the experience that we have of light and conscience is ineffable. And we try to to convey that through our language. And one of the ways that we would convey that is here in first 
the first John chapter one, just by saying God is light. So pay attention in your life when you feel like you are experiencing light, whether it was thought that was enlightened or whether it was emotion that was enlightened. It's when that thought and that emotion gets enlightened that you now attribute to be of God. Not all of my thoughts are of God. Thought does not equal God. Emotion does not equal God. And a lot of people need to remember that, that just because you're feeling something doesn't mean that it's divine and of God. But there are emotions. God will communicate to you through your emotions. And in particular, you'll be able to distinguish that through conscience and through light. And God will communicate to you through your thoughts. And he will do that through light as well. So I'll, if I have time this week, I may do a, a third podcast on these verses to expound on that. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth, cleanseth us from all sin. The most significant thing when it comes to Christianity is living the Christian life. If we walk in the light and not in the darkness. So if we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not the truth. If you want to bring truth into your life and experience the truth that makes people free, the truth that is able to cast out darkness, that actually gives you a feeling of peace, a feeling of meaning, that, and more so that spiritual component of peace and meaning, all those things are more of a spiritual, uh, in the spiritual domain. If you want that in your life, the, the way that you're going to do that is you're trying to bring more light into your life. And how do you do that? You walk in the light. You identify the, the things which are enlightened in your life where that light is directing you and you move towards that. And if you do that, then darkness will leave you and your whole body will be full of light. That is the verses that you'll find in the book of Matthew where it, say, it says that the light of the body is the eye. If an eye be single to the glory of God, and the glory of God is that pure light. If your eye is singly, singularly focused on that pure light, then if thine eye be single to the glory of God, thy whole body shall be full of light. If you want your whole being to be filled with light, you make your, your focus predominantly on light. And there's a lot that we can expound on that maybe in a future time. And the opposite of that is if thine eye being evil thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? So if you feel like your life is surrounded by a lot of dark things, then it becomes, well, let's shift our focus. Let's start looking at light. And what can we do to bring ourselves with light? And you'll find that it's actually not very easy. It's very simplistic in concept. But in terms of doing this in real life, in order to come towards the light, you're going to find it's one of the most painful, difficult processes to do. Because all of that is, is it's, it's, it's what it means to keep the commandments. He that saith he abideth in God ought himself also to walk even as he walked. And we express that at the conclusion of the, the former podcast that love is that which maintains the connection. And if you are going to say that you abide in God, you need to walk as he walked. You need to follow in Christ's footsteps. And following in Christ's footsteps is to confront fear, to confront suffering, con to confront negative emotion, to confront that negative force out there, whether that's Satan, you want to convey that in a psychological sense, Thanatos, you need to confront all of that squarely and bear that 
and move forward to maintain the connection. Verse 2 in chapter 2, Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I always like to make those points of emphasis that our faith is not an elitist faith, um, that we believe that this gospel of Jesus Christ impacts all people, and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints believes that in a more real way when you're looking at the doctrinal um, aspects of the faith, that the doctrines associated with the Church of Jesus Christ truly do believe in that latter sentence, that for the sins of the whole world, not just an elite few, but that every person who has come to this planet, every person that has come to this earth, will experience the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ because it is that powerful, because the love of God is that powerful, because that agape, if again, go to the other podcast, is that powerful and that real. Now, the word propitiation is a term that you do not use. I've never actually heard another human being use that phrase outside of a biblical context. So it's a word that you may be unfamiliar with. A propitiation is a sacrifice that is made to appease a god. So I'm, I'm leaving it more generalized because you can look at a lot of different cultures. You can look at all the cultures that, cultures that have existed through all of humanity. And all cultures have made sacrifices to appease the gods. And this could open up a whole deep psychological discussion about the gods. But it's like there there is this sense that we have within us, I would say most fundamentally, a sense that we are doing something wrong. In a Freudian sense, it's the superego. And, and what that does is it gives us a tremendous amount of shame and guilt and all of this negative emotion that's driven by the idea that I should be doing this, I should be doing this. And we say, well, how, how do I ever meet the demands of my superego? How do I meet the demands of that fundamental experience that I have with the voice in my head that says that I'm not good enough, that I could be doing more, that I should be doing more? How do we ever silence that voice? Well, that's the idea of propitiation. How do we appease that divine force? And, and I, I would describe that as a divine force in the sense that that phenomena exists in me and it exists in you and it exists in every other person on this planet and it, it existed in all of these people, all of these cultures, thousands and thousands of years back in time. So it's as if this phenomena, it is transpersonal, it's, it exists among all people and it is timeless, so it's almost eternal. So it's a godlike force that we are confronting. It's a godlike force that all individuals have to confront. And how do we confront that? Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. That it is in through Christ that we're able to reconcile the demands of that voice, that superego within us. It's that it is through Christ that we're able to be able to banish and put aside fear not fear specifically in this context, but shame and guilt, and, and ultimately reach peace. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So there's quite a bit in this idea of keeping the commandments and love and actually action. So this sounds very similar to James, that faith without works is dead. With, for, with John, he's saying that love without works is dead. <laughs> and if we're in, in a, I just coined that phrase. I feel actually proud of myself for thinking that off, off the top of my head. But 
this idea that if you say that you're born of God and you're not keeping the commandments, then you're not truly born of God. Being born of God without works is dead. Loving without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. And that's what's expressed in chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. He that saith that I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling within him. Again, it, it goes back to this idea that love without works is dead. I'm going to keep sticking with that term because I like it. 1 John uh, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, I use quite often. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Uh, a witness to our divine identity part of our whole doctrinal foundation that we believe that we are children of God. And this is not just unique to men. This is a universal term that we are the children of God. And, and, and if you want to say that this has some specific component to it with using sons, it maybe has some aspect of priesthood. But I would actually say that in general, that this refers to all of God's children because of the second verse. Now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So it has this image of a future day that we will see God as he is, and we shall be like him, because we have this divine identity. So that's a significant, those two verses are significant in establishing our divine nature and what that is. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you want to have confidence, it will come through obedience, abiding in God, abiding the light that is in you, specifically, if you want that confidence. If you want the confidence that's able to eradicate fear, guilt, and shame, it's going to come by abiding in Christ and abiding specifically in, in light, the light that is in you. And that was First John verses, or chapter two, verses twenty-eight and twenty-nine. First John two fifteen and sixteen. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lusts of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. There is the ongoing cultural conflict. This is not just a cultural conflict, it is a conflict that is eternal. It goes all the way to Revelation, which we'll get into a future podcast, the war that is in heaven. But this is another way of expressing that ongoing war that's going on, a conflict that is sowed very deeply within us, deeply within our conscience, within our psyche, our soul even, that all of that gets manifested. And this is this idea of saying that we need to forsake the world. There is a directional component to it. Uh, you can't, you can't be in the world. You cannot not be in the world. We use the term "be of the world" and "be of Christ." You cannot serve God and Mammon. Ultimately, that would be the idea that you get. That comes from the Sermon on the Mount: that no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and the Mammon. God and Mammon, and Mammon is a representation of the world. So again, it's a call to us to 
be careful with the degree in which we have entwined ourselves with worldliness, the ideals of the world. And if you really did some cultural um, reviews, it'd be very quick to identify the things that the world loves. And if you are loving the things that the world loves, you are going to be in conflict with God because the world naturally is going to lean towards the id, to use the Freudian term, towards the, the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes and the pride of life. Those are things that we need to avoid. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. That is 1 John 3.18. That is the more scriptural term for my phrase that I'm going to keep coining, and that is that love without works is dead. You get that in 1 John 3.18 in a much more poetic way. 1 John 3 verse 20 is a hidden gem. So if you felt like all of this is stuff that I already knew, 1 John 3.20 is a verse that everyone should know. It's one that I have kind of memorized. I know exactly where it is that I can draw upon, and I use it quite often. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. The whole idea is, this is a very common experience that people have. Our heart, kind of the symbolic center of your emotions, if our emotions, our heart condemns us, know that God is greater than your heart. God is greater than your physical concept of what reality is. The, you know, the emotional part of us, the human component of us is going to struggle with this keeping the balance between Am I good enough? The it, the id, the ego, and the superego, it's going to struggle with that. And you will encounter times where emotionally your heart may condemn you. But you have to have that faith that is greater than your heart, that's greater than emotion. Your faith has to transcend that feeling of guilt and shame that you have. And it will do that as long as there is light behind that, if that's truly what you believe. Because what you'll get often is, I feel so sh shamed. I feel so bad. I feel like I'm not good enough. Do you believe that you're good enough? There may be a pause and then they say, well, yeah, I do. I just don't feel it. Well, you can't center your whole life on emotions. If you do that, you're going to be taken on this roller coaster ride because your emotions are going to go everywhere. They're totally inconsistent. You don't want your emotions to be the guiding source of your life. That's not how you set your cells. You set your cells on light. And that will guide your emotion and it will start to orient your emotion. It will start to orient even your thoughts and logic because logic itself is not something you want to orient yourself. Because if your logic condemn you, know that God is greater than your logic. We also use the same thing for thought, the cognitive component of man, as well as the emotional component of man. God is greater than both of those. The spirituality, the spiritual domain transcends both of those and is the top of the hierarchy. And if you switch that and put emotions on the top, or rationality and logic at the top, you're going to get things wrong. What's at the top is light. That's how I would phrase that. Light is at the top. Light and love, God, agape, that connection, truth, that is what sits at the top. And, and God will use emotions and thoughts. Um, it's, it's one of those that it, it goes one way, but not the other, that God will speak to us through our emotions, but all of our emotions are not of God. God will speak to us through our thoughts, but not all of our thoughts are of God. Now, 1 John 3, 24, And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, 
and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he hath given us. If you want the spirit in your life, keep the commandments. What commandments should you keep? Well, appeal to God and see what gets enlightened in your life. Look for the light which is guiding you, and as you identify that light, it will enlighten specific commandments that you should keep. And those will be commandments for you because God has taken the time to enlighten the path before you. If you'll keep that, you'll dwell in God, and God will dwell in you. And that's the key, is we want God to be dwelling within us. Hereby we know that we dwell in him and he in us because he hath given us of his spirit. By doing these things, it will bring the spirit of God into your life, which will bring power, which will bring peace, which will bring confidence, each of those things. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. So um, one of the other verses that I wanted to go over was 1 John 5 verse 3. Now, I think John 14, 15 is, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's a very strong, keep my commandments, you know, do this type of an admonition. I prefer 1 John 5, verse 3. I have that as a cross-reference there, and I have 1 John 5, 3 that I use more often because I think it expresses the, the, the totality of the idea far better. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. So what does it mean to love God? It means that we keep his commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. But it adds the second component to it. And his commandments are not grievous. We're not resentful about it. We're not just grumpy, murmuring the whole time. It's, look, if you truly love God, you're going to make the sacrifice. You're going to voluntarily, willingly make that sacrifice. And if you voluntarily and willingly make the sacrifice... There may be the part of you, the id, the natural man, the flesh that's totally groaning and upset about that, but ultimately you will keep that commandment without getting bitter about it. It'll override the bitterness when you truly love God and keep his commandments for the right reasons and not just out of pure obedience. If you're doing it out of just pure obedience, a lot of times you get this resentment, but the idea is you want to be living the commandments of God and have them fully integrated in your life so that there's not this internal resentment about every decision you make. And the way that you arrive at that is you have to think through what you're doing. You have to identify your values. You have to express them and know why you're doing what you're doing. And when you do that, his commandments are not grievous. Now, there, there's a full narrative along with that. And, you know, we have a tendency a lot of the times in the church to skip the narrative that there is this whole fall of man, this downward slope where we have to work things out. But the conclusion of it is, at the end of the day, when you've struggled with God for the blessing, that as you've struggled to keep the commandments and understand them, that at the conclusion, the telos of that, the end result of that struggle is you reach a point where you are keeping the commandments voluntarily and there is no more resentment about them. Uh, a quick phrase in 1 John 5, verse 6, just at the very end of the verse, it says, The Spirit is truth. We, I, I like the idea of truth and, and was going to focus on that. That was part of the, the initial verses that we read with light. Light and truth have this harmonious relationship that you're going to see in, see in Scripture. And so when we look at connection with agape, there's a lot there that has to do with kind of the feminine 
And then the light and the truth component has more of the masculine. If you're looking at some of this from a more an archetypal idea that, that, that you need both of them together. You can't just have this love, 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 love. There needs to be this aspect of truth and love need to go there. You know, I am the way, the truth and the light. Life, you know, Christ, he has the totality of it. He's not just mercy, that there is a justice component to that. Perfect justice is truth, perfect mercy, and is this a co component of agape and love. In the epistles, the second epistle of John, for the truth's sake which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. That was one of the verses I was going to use to describe conscience. It's one of the verses that I like the best. Though it doesn't have the word conscience in there, it is suggesting from a doctrinal perspective that truth exists inside of us. And, and now whether you were to describe that as saying truth exists in us or light exists in me, they're both trying to describe the same phenomena. And so if you are a visual person, you may say, well, now observe the experiences that you have in your life and see which of them are enlightened. And that will tell you what is true right now. And that will be a very direct way that you are communicating God. And that's going to be how you get God and light more in you as you heed to the light that is already within you. Second John chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, it reiterates the idea. I, I wrote no new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment, that ye that as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. Um, John, more than any of the other apostles, has this emphasis on love and loving God, loving one another, and, and again, associates what, what does it mean to love? What is love? It means keeping the commandments. There was another verse in John. Now, there is another verse in John it has a bit of a different direction, but I like the principle there. And this is Third John chapter 1, verse 9. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. So why is this verse significant? It, because it has a... This is an example of the struggles that the apostles were going through. It's an evidence of, at least in this instance, at that t at that time in history, that there was apostates and apostasy already working through there, and the, the apostles were kind of in over their head trying to establish order within the church. And so John says, I wrote to the church, he's giving them commandments, but Diotrephes, a particular individual, loves to have the preeminence among them, and therefore he received them not. He was not receiving the apostolic word and the apostolic commandment. Instead, he himself was setting himself up as a beacon of light. And that's always a warning for us. You know, pride can get out of control quite quickly. And you yourself, as you're trying to look at your life, you should be asking yourself, how much do you love to have the preeminence? How much do you love the spotlight? You should be a little wary of falling in love with the spotlight that's one of the most common descriptions of Satan is that love for preeminence is what caused him to fall from heaven when he was saying, I will be the only begotten. I will redeem all mankind. He's trying to take the glory of God, that we should be willing to let the glory of God be God's glory and not take the preeminence to ourself. So it's a verse that would be greatly overlooked, and that's in Third John chapter 1, verse 9. I believe that these 
also covered Jude. So I'll go over some of the verses of Jude. And I mean, there's so much content in these, in the epistles from John that I get so easy to skip past Jude. And Jude is short, but very powerful. There's some awesome content in Jude. Jude specifically has Jude chapter 1, verse 3, exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. I like that phrase, earnestly contend for the faith. If you're going to engage in the path of Christ, you will have to earnestly contend for faith. It's not going to be a passive thing. And there's a lot that we learn in the, the fundamental narrative of man that passivity is not what we're allowed to have. There was war in heaven. Even in heaven, there was war. So there is conflict. We cannot be passive. We have to contend for the faith. Um, in verse in the verses 6 and 7, it gives commentary on Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a verse in Ezekiel that's often used in describing Sodom and Gomorrah and the sin that they had. And it says there that what led to Sodom and Gomorrah's downfall, it was that they were prideful and ungrateful. And, and that's fair because that's, that's vague and there's truth there. But you'd say, in what ways were they manifesting pride? In what ways were they showing their their ungratitude? And so in verses 6 and 7 in Jude chapter 1, it gives us more specific examples of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and holds over the idea of the sexual sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was still a significant thing and led to the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah. There is this verse in 11, 12, and 13. Uh, 12 and 13 is one of, actually one of, the verses that I love a lot because it's so poetic. So when I look at verses 12 and 13 in Jude, then I use this as a poetic expression of how to describe vanity, how to describe shame. These are spots in your feasts of charity. When they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth, without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And you just read that and it sounds like pure poetry. It's beautiful, This these images here. And so Jude is describing you know, aspects of apostasy, you know, there's spots in the feast of your charity, you know, this idea of imperfection, there's a vanity there. Now, when you're doing something that is not purely motivated, that's not done in the right way with the right heart, then there is a huge spot in the feast of your charity. And there's a tremendous amount of, you know, darkness, this void that exists when you're, when you don't have the fundamental motivation behind what you're doing. That I, I use that as a reference in Isaiah 1 to what is the purpose of the multitude of sacrifices before me. You know, do you have the right heart? If you don't have the right heart, then then all of this image that you get here in verses 12 and 13 in Jude become relevant. You need to make sure that you have the right motivation behind what you're doing. Um, you need to have the right motivation in your worship of God. And finally, verse 24 in Jude now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. There's lots of different descriptions and titles that are given to God and Jesus Christ. 
This one, I love the image associated with it. Jesus Christ is he that is able to keep you from falling. Now, that doesn't mean that you'll never scrape your knee, not that type of falling, but in a more real way that something in Christ allows us to get back up, that allows us to avoid the, you would say, the complete and total existential fall. Christ is he that is able to help us avoid falling from that, not the small little scrape your knees. We're still going to have trials. We're still going to fall in many ways. We're still going to experience a lot of difficult things. But in the most ultimate of senses, in the most broad and general, God will not let us utterly and completely fall. God has not completely and utterly let us fall. Christ has lifted us up. And there is a good cross-reference in Micah. I believe it's Micah chapter 5. It is actually Micah chapter 7. I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. God, who will, in a sense, prevent us from falling. He has allowed a fall, but has not allowed that fall to be total in the, in the most pure general gospel sense. Because of Adam, Adam's transgression and the fall from Garden of Eden, we have left that. And we have fallen to some degree, but God did not let us continue falling forever and ever in an eternal way. Instead, God has kept us from falling because of the love of Jesus Christ, because of the sacrifice and the atonement of Jesus Christ. We did not completely and utterly fall. Instead, we started to transcend and ascend, and that there was a path to, re- to redemption. And that's all conveyed there in that verse of Jude. I like the grit that's found in that verse from Micah chapter 7, verse 8. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. And and it's because of that faith in Jesus Christ who has kept us from falling completely and utterly. And not only that, but he teaches us, he teaches us to ascend. And that's found in Isaiah 48, verses 17 and 18. Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord thy God which teacheth thee to profit, which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldst go. The word profit in Hebrew could be translated as ascend. And so in a future day, I could go through all of the Hebrew words there, but God is he who teaches us to profit. He teaches us to ascend. He causes the ascent. He causes in a miraculous way that all the gravitational force of the fall, all of the entropy, the scientific entropy that we've been able to identify all of that natural man direction that's moving towards death, all of that thanatos, that that force that's always pushing us downward, that was able to stop at some point. And it was not it not only just halted at the command of Jesus Christ, at the power and authority that's found in Christ, but it started to reverse and turn upwards. Now there was an entire narrative that we do still have a fall and everyone will experience that. You will experience the pain of the fall, but that pain was not complete and utter and total and infinite and eternal. Instead, we were able to, we, we were saved from continuing to fall, but then we were taught how to ascend and through Christ we're able to ascend. And I believe that. And I share all of these things with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Your support for this podcast is greatly appreciated. Thank you. You can support this podcast by purchasing one of my books, The Divine Nature or His Voice, The Teachings of the Old and New Testament. These books can be purchased on Amazon or by visiting my website, www.unfoldingthescriptures.com. Thank you and God bless.